Welcome to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. My name is Anne Geisinger. I'm Executive Director here at EBC, and I'll be your host for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk all about the business of the environment, from stormwater to offshore wind, climate adaptation to brownfields redevelopments, everything in between. And this episode continues our series highlighting EBC's recent EB Award winners. We awarded them on June 8th. You can check out the link in the show notes for information about all the winners. But today the focus is on Cambridge Crossing. It's a project that brings a transit-oriented stormwater smart redevelopment. It's 43 acres and it actually crosses three different cities, Cambridge, Somerville, and Boston here in Massachusetts. So a really big congratulations to that full project team. I know there were a lot of people involved and the project is receiving or received, I should say, the EBC Nicholas Humber Award for Outstanding Collaboration. Um, We really can't bring that full team here onto the podcast to hear all the details about it because it would be a lot of people. So I've got two folks here who can dive in, give us a sense of the complexities of the project, the coordination among all the different partners and parties that brought this development to life and continues to bring it to life because I don't think it's yet completed. So here with me, we have John Rappaport, Director of Development with DIFCO West, and Liz Clark, who's an associate with Beals and Thomas. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for being with us. So tell me a little bit about your background, Liz. Where where have you come from? What is your What are your specialties? So I'm an associate with Beals and Thomas. We are the civil engineers, surveyors, and permit, uh, assisted with permitting on the Cambridge Crossing project. Personally, I've been in the industry for almost 20 years, and I've really focused in on urban redevelopment. It's something that I really enjoy seeing our forgotten corners in our cities being turned into vibrant new neighborhoods. And uh, John, what do you focus on? Where are you coming from? I'm on the development team with Divco West. I started in 2016, just after Divco acquired the Cambridge Crossing. It was then North Point. Uh, site. Uh, before DIVCO, I was in Washington, D.C. and uh, have a background in construction, did a master's program, and kind of expanded my my world within the, uh, the real estate industry and uh, studied finance and knew that I wanted to get into development and knew that I wanted to work on big, complicated projects, and I landed a, a great role here at DIVCO. That's great. So um, my first question really is, I'll start with John. So you came in right at the beginning of this project, it sounds like. So do you have a sense for where the idea came to be? What who what was the impetus for this 43 acres? What did people want to do with it? What was the vision? So when DIVCO acquired the site, we acquired a uh, special permit uh, through Cambridge that governed what the site would look like, the amount of density, the types of uses uh, that were allowed. DIVCO then pursued a major amendment to that permit that kind of restructured the roadways, uh, reworked some of the development parcels, and had just a, a, a new uh, approach to how uh, North Point should look and feel. So that major amendment was approved in 2016, and, and right after the approval, we got started on all the roadways infrastructure and broke ground on speculative buildings. Parcel JK was our first commercial building. Parcels W, I, and Q1 were retail buildings that we we started soon after, and um, and then Parcel I, our our first apartment building, was also started. When we acquired the site, I'll just 
there were there were no roads. It was a, a giant dirt patch, as uh, Liz is probably familiar with. Um, it, it was um, it was quite barren. So it, it's been fun to be a part of it and, and see the, the project evolve and deliver into what it is today. Very cool. So Liz, talking about this giant dirt patch. <laughs> yeah. Is that where you come into the project? Oh, yeah. All things soil. Um, this was 22 years in the making. Just to go back and add a little bit of history, the site was purchased by the initial developer in the early 2000s. And at that time, there was a planning commission formed, the East Planning, uh, the East Cambridge Planning Coalition, which included the development team, abutting neighbors, businesses, as well as municipal officials formed together to develop the vision of the greater North Point area, which did include more than just the Cambridge uh, crossing parcel at the time. And their goal was to really set the tone and develop the urban design guidelines. And as John had mentioned, then two buildings were built that was complete with the partial completion of the Central Common in like 2008. And then another building was built in 2010. That was parcel, that was 2020. And in 2015, when Div Divco acquired the site, that special permit amendment that was done with a lot of input prior to even approaching the planning board, Divco had gone out and solicited with the East Cambridge Business Coalition, uh, abutting parcels, as well as the city officials to get their input on how that was going to change the master planning of the site. And it was received very well when it went to the planning board. There was, I think, just a handful of hearings and it really redistributed some of the space, opened up another park and set the impetus to get it going. Uh, and it's been amazing to be along for the ride since then. So I came in with the building, the construction of 2020 and then have been on since. Uh, it's been a feat of engineering and collaboration and just getting everybody to the table to essentially build this whole new uh, urban neighborhood. That's really cool. Um, John, so speaking of this kind of collaborative environment with this uh, East Cambridge group and other abutters and things like that, can you speak at all to that process of doing that community outreach? I appreciate Liz mentioning that. Um, there was a, a, a pretty massive outreach. So I, I would expand it to say all stakeholders. Uh, DIFCO was meeting with the types of tenants that uh, Cambridge uh, typically attracts. So we were meeting with life science uh, tenants, office users. We were meeting with uh, different architects and design teams. Uh, we were meeting with all the neighborhood groups, East Cambridge planning team, the ECPT, the East Cambridge Business Association, economic development groups, as well as existing neighbors. Like I said, uh, there were three projects, three residential projects within our site that had delivered. So there were already residents here. Uh, and then there's also residents outside of our site on kind of this side of East Cambridge on the side of MOB, uh, Monsignor O'Brien Highway. Uh, so there were a lot of groups uh, that we met with and, and took input from. And out of that collaboration came our special permit, our conversations with tenants and what they need in their buildings, 
uh, helped inform kind of what the size of the parcels, the development parcels should be, which informed kind of where we would have space for parks and uh, different roadway networks, listening to bike advocacy groups on you know what we need to be doing for bike safety and how to make the site multimodal and and open and safe for everybody was an important part. So it uh, to Liz's point, it, it was a really intense and and fun process. I mean, we were really looking at a, a pretty much blank slate there and coming up with our own uh, vision with everyone's input. It wasn't it wasn't um, it wasn't just Divco's vision for what the site should be. We really wanted it to be a site uh, that was open and inclusive for everybody. Um, so that was a very fun process. I think out of it uh, came a, a great master plan and, and um, I'm just, I'm really thankful to be a part of that process and, and kind of see it through to execution. That's great. I think I want to pick up a little bit on this transit idea because it, there was kind of a lot of transit involved in this project. There's the moving of Leachmere Station, there's a bikeway and a community path, there's there's this bike, bike safety piece. Um, so I don't know if Liz or John, whoever feels more comfortable talking about that, but I just would love to know a little bit more about all, all this transit being coordinated and planned for this project. So uh, because we have such great connectivity to our surrounding neighborhoods, and then we also have the Green Line, Leachmere Station, and then the Orange Line Community College Station, we were able to give alternative modes of transportation, your pedestrians and your cyclists, really center stage as we started to get into the details of the design. There was extensive coordination and mitigation performed on the traffic side to make sure that we weren't negatively impacting few times in Mr. O'Brien Highway and or putting any detriment on our neighbors. But our public realm really became a center focus. So as part of that special permanent amendment. There was this whole retail path that brings you to Leachmere Station that was added in, and that connects into our cycle pathways. So we have 11,000 linear feet of bike paths, both on street and raised throughout the project. And they connect to the Minuteman bike trail, as well as the, um, the Somerville community path. So you can go from the North Point Park system that's east of the site all the way down past, I think it goes to Alwife, if I'm correct. It does, it goes all the way to Alwife, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And then yep. you can jump into the Minuteman path and go all the way out to Lexington if you really want to. <laughs> right. You're up for yep. it, yeah. So uh, it was definitely a very, very fun thing to be a part of, very interesting. There was a lot of detail going into cross sections and how people are getting across roadways safely and protection for our cyclists. And then a ton went into that coordination with Leachmere Station and bringing that onto our site. And that was an ongoing effort for, I think, almost a decade, um, just with the way that the Green Line Extension Project worked out. I'll pass it over to John, I guess, to add to it. You mentioned a few a few coordination and collaboration entities that I, I missed in the previous 
question. How could I forget all the collaboration that went into uh, with the MBTA and GLX? So the, the, the interesting story there is uh, so the, the day that Divco executed the, the purchase and sale of North Point, actually the next day, the Green Line extension project came in over budget and was canceled. And that was obviously a huge, <laughs> yeah, a huge part of, um, you know, our business plan was just having this, uh, having great connectivity into the site. When we first acquired the site, it, it was bound by basically three bridges. So you, you had to basically go underneath an overpass or underneath a bridge or over a highway, which is what MOB looked like at the time, to get into our site. So that was a major uh, challenge that we that we sought to overcome. Um, you still have to cross underneath bridges, but we've done a lot of work to try and make that as pleasant and safe an experience as possible. So just touching on the MBTA, so obviously uh, the MBT, the Green Line Extension project happened. It's wrapping up now, and the station at Leachmere is now open. The entry and exit is, is right on to our site, and uh, it's been amazing watching that come to life. It, there's also a bus uh, station, a, a bus uh, turnaround station right next to Leachmere that also services the site and connects into the East Cambridge neighborhood. The other station, uh, not to miss one, is the community college station over in Charlestown. One of the things that we did when we designed the corner parcel of CX was um, try and make the perceived distance across the Gilmore Bridge uh, much more pleasant. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Gilmore Bridge, but it's it's an old I have uh, actually mess. done that walk before. <laughs> yes. So I don't remember why, but I have. <laughs> it, it connects East Cambridge with, with Charlestown. So it's, a, it's a, a wonderful connection, but it was over top of the MBTA service yard. And then you know, it, it kept going and it doesn't reach grade until you get really close to Monsignor O'Brien Highway. So it feels like a very long bridge if you're walking or biking. We expanded upon the Brian P. Murphy staircase uh, that was originally built as part of 2020 and uh, enhanced the elevator uh, connection, enhanced the stairs and the plantings, and then actually kind of expanded the walkway along the bridge. And so now if you're walking it today, you're walking along, you know, what feels like a city streetscape with plantings and trees and everything. And the, the perceived distance that you're actually on the bridge is much shorter. So it, I think we kind of improved two key uh, mass transit connections. And then like Liz talked about, the, the bike enhancements and the bike connectivity was huge. I mean, um, we, we see a ton of cyclists come through the site, not only to the site, but right through it. There's a connection over at the North Point Park over to Charlestown and then can go over the locks to get into Boston. So it, it's a it's a wonderful bike connection and uh, thoroughfare as well. And then in terms of pedestrian access, DIVCO as part of the project was tasked with uh, some reconstruction of the Monsignor O'Brien Highway. There's a, a mass dot plan to make the highway feel less highway and more boulevard-esque. Um, part of that plan is extending First Street in Cambridge through what was the old uh, Leachmere Station and into Cambridge Crossing. That connection's almost done today. And if you've been on Monsignor O'Brien, I think you can 
attest to the improvements. It, it's a, as it approaches the site, it feels like a tree-lined boulevard. I think traffic has slowed down. And then from a pedestrian connection, kind of intermediate crossing islands, the, uh, the signals have, have changed. There's more crosswalks. It feels just safer uh, to walk across now. It, it, it felt, felt very unpleasant there uh, for a while, but we're, we're, we're finally uh, nearing the completion of that project and really excited for the, the first street connection. And, what that will bring to the site. That's great. I think that the the transit was what I really honed in on when I was looking through sort of the nomination and the project. And I thought, wow, I mean, I just the sheer volume of having to build roads, deal with the Leechmere station, having the bikeway, the path, the community path, all this stuff integrated into the site is fantastic. And I think it really must add a lot to the East Cambridge community in terms of access and connection and 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 what you say, like just a nicer feel, like it's not like a highway anymore. It's more like a boulevard. And going across that bridge was definitely like a windswept like experience in the past. We're like yeah. oh, logging over this bridge, and you know I haven't been there since then, but I'm sure it's much nicer now. It sounds like it's a much more pleasant walk. So <laughs> yeah, what um, what kind of sort of resiliency or climate adaptation uh, work was involved, Liz? Do you have a sense for any of that? You know those pieces that have been on integrated onto the site. Yeah, in many ways, this development was way ahead of its time when we talk about sustainability and resilience. Just starting out, sustainability was always a core value, especially because we had all those wonderful transit connections and we were able to uh, feature non-vehicular transit throughout the site. But it went beyond that as well. I mean, it was founded upon revitalizing an old rail yard. So you do have that good redevelopment story. And I think a few big things that we've done is the creation of the open space. So about a quarter of the site has been reserved as open space through uh, a series of different parks with the central four and a half acre common, which connects kind of east to west of what we're calling a green spine with other pocket parks is a huge thing for the community as well as in the sustainability realm. We were able to utilize green infrastructure, integrate that into our park to treat the stormwater before releasing it. And then in terms of resiliency, back when this was master plan, there wasn't much talk about sea level rise in the early 2000s, but we were became resilient because we did actually program in raising the site about six to 10 feet. Um, that brings us up above the projected 2070 flood elevations where the Mystic River kind of overtops its banks and comes down towards our site. So we are protected and we're one of the, we're one of the bigger areas that are in Cambridge. This took almost, I think, a over 100,000 cubic yards of material to bring the roadway elevations up. And there's more, I mean, I think as well. We programmed in with our tr our treescaped roads. We were evaluating heat island impacts, combating that. So it, it's done a lot, I think, in the sustainability and resiliency realm. And what about specifically with the stormwater? It sounded like there's some pretty interesting stormwater management happening on the site. Yeah, the Central Common has been programmed to integrate the stormwater management system into it. So you have a series of four bays and swales that all drain to a common pond in the 
in the common and that bond allows stormwater to, it holds it in there for a while and it allows all the particles and pollutants to help settle before it discharges out to the Leachmere Canal. So it, again, it was one of the first, I'd say that took an urban setting and integrated these low impact development, green infrastructure man measures and use them as an asset and a feature versus something that we just stick underground and hide away. There was also reuse programs into the stormwater system. So the central common pond is able to be used for uh, irrigation and there were cisterns placed in different parks as well that can also, that capture roof runoff and then reuse it as irrigation. That's great. If I could just expand yeah. a, a little bit on that. Liz did a great job uh, explaining some of the features. A, a funny story, when I, when I first started at DIFCO, as Liz mentioned, the, the central park was partially complete. And at the time, there was an old, um, we called it the old ADM building, which is former kind of warehouse and industrial use. But that was, our, that was our temporary office at the time. And when we were looking at redesigning and finishing the park and thinking about our open space, uh, there was a pond. Uh, an existing pond in the park. And we thought, uh, well, why don't we just irrigate the park out of the pond? They said, well, there's not enough runoff, you know, stormwater to recharge the pond. So we're actually filling some of the pond up with a, a domestic tap so that there, so this domestic tap was kind of constantly running and filling up this pond that looked natural. And, uh, and we, we just thought, this is nuts. Um, there's got to be a better way to do this. So we, we took that theme and kind of ran with it that we could irrigate using the stormwater because we we knew we were going to have this massive irrigation demand for all the parks that we were, were uh, designing. And so um, we kind of from the buildings into the into the pond uh, designed really a network for stormwater. So the, the rain that falls on a building's roof goes into a cistern within the building. Many of the buildings have gray water reuse integrated into their system. So, and that can vary from, you know, flushing of, of toilets and gray water system there, recharging of cooling towers, and then also irrigating green roofs, irrigating, you know, plantings around the building site. But then the each cistern then overflows uh, into uh, the network. The network then flows, as Liz described, into a series of uh, holding tanks, which separates out particle materials and, you know, anything floating on the surface from the streets as well. It um, mitigates the, the introduction of phosphorus into the, uh, the waterways. So then ultimately those catch basins, the phosphorus mitigation tanks, uh, everything flows into the central pond. And then we are actually pulling water from the pond, treating it, and then sending it back to the park, the irrigation. And then any overflow from the pond goes into the Charles River. And I think, Liz, you may have the numbers on this, but I, the, I think we've calculated that we're, we're essentially retaining something like nine this is going to correct me on this 90 percent, 95 percent of the rainwater you're right i'm on all right good all yeah. right something like 95 percent of the rainwater stays on site gets reused on site we we had a i think that's a, a huge success and something that divco is very proud of i'm personally proud of because i i worked with liz and her team on executing this plan and, and something that I, I think that was, you know, getting to 95%, I thought was like well beyond our, our wildest dreams. I thought there was no way we would get to 50%. But anyways, I, I think there's also a benefit. I acknowledge that there's a, a massive benefit in owning and operating all of the, the site, all of the buildings. So it's, 
acknowledge that there's probably a lot of difficulty in executing something like that on kind of a one-off building base, but we thought just so just a wonderful opportunity to use the resources that are available to us. Yeah, it's particularly a challenging to do in the urban environment. I think it was a big feat of collaboration with us and then also your geotechnical and environmental engineers, just because we tend not to have the greatest soils that are receptive to absorbing rainwater in the urban environment. So it did help that DIVCO was open to exploring reuse and integrating it into the to the plan as well. And all of this was done to, as John mentioned, to mitigate phosphorus. So it was part of the city of Cambridge, the, the, their DPW, wanting us to meet the TMDL requirements of the Charles River. And this was all done after half the system was in, in that initial phase one development where the Sierra and Tango were built in a part of the central commons. So we w didn't want to go in and undo too much of what had already been done and wanted to provide additional mitigation for what had already been constructed as well. So we did overtreat on the newer areas that have gone in to offset what was put in previously. I think that's a great story. To add on that, and just to, we over-designed the phosphorus mitigation for future developments. So, you know, all of the phosphorus mitigation required uh, is in place, you know, for the site at full build. So we're kind of thinking forward on, on that. And I, I thank you, Liz, for once again reminding me the topic of the, the call is collaboration. And, and uh, it was a full collaboration with environmental uh, scientists and uh, licensed professionals, geotechnical landscape designers, irrigation designers, uh, civil engineers. It, it was, um, and then each of the building design teams as well. We basically we more or less dictated uh, to the design team. This is how it, it needs to go. This is how the system's connecting. And, and they were all really excited to be be a part of it as well. So it, that that was a collaboration that that is the full uh, the full development team. That's great. That's great. So John, um, I believe the site had a lot of sort of remediation stories to tell. Do you have any you know commentary on that? The site has a, a long history of pretty intense industrial uses. A, a long time ago, there I think there was um, a shipping use, and then. Uh, it was the terminus of the Boston and Maine Railway at one point. And then, you know, as a terminus of a, a major rail line, it had all the kind of ancillary uses that would come with it. So factories and, you know, service yards and things like that. So you can imagine the types of materials and the, the lack of regulation, I would call it, uh, at the time when the site was being used for those uses. Uh, so we inherited and acquired a site that was, I'd say, rather dirty environmentally. So the, the site is regulated, you know, through the through Mass DEP, we have very strict and the site is highly regulated. When we go through and develop each parcel, we're bringing the parcel up to regulatory compliance, I call it. Most of our spaces are kind of free and clear of contamination. And then many are are capped in a safe way to allow for the use and enjoyment, you know, safe use and enjoyment of the public in our spaces. So I think there's a really positive story there. We 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 took a 
a very a desolate former industrial site and it had some dangerous aspects to it in terms of abandoned structures and kind of what had been there previously and and have done a significant cleanup of the site and significant uh kind of bringing up to uh safe standards if you will liz i'm sure i'm sure there were a lot of pieces that you were involved in in terms of the remediation as well yeah, you couldn't put a shovel in the ground without talking to the environmental consultant, which was Vertex on the team. So we did have a process where, uh, you know, they informed our design very much. So all of our open spaces have three feet of clean cover that overlies what's a marker barrier, which is just really an orange snow fence that alerts you not to go any further. We worked with the city of Cambridge because Cambridge, the project was designed so that all the infrastructure would be towards the city of Cambridge standards, even though we do cross into Boston and Somerville. So we work Cambridge DPW and all of our utilities are bedded in clean corridors. So completely clean and ported fill and again, lined with a marker barrier. And there were different areas where, you know, we tried to minimize excavation or disturbance of the soils so that we weren't getting into too much of the contaminated material. And then also with the stormwater, there was a high level of figuring out where we could try and infiltrate so that we weren't hitting, again, any areas that might have been impacted. So we we developed a matrix at one point that kind of ruled off areas and gave us grades from both a hydrologic standpoint as well as an environmental. I remember the matrix very well. Uh, <laughs> trying to find a, a home on a site um, for uh, these pretty massive infiltration tanks. I mean, that they're, I say infiltration tank, it's really a large concrete structure that gets buried with an open bottom. And, and it, there's, there's a significant amount of them so yeah you know, finding a space that didn't interfere with future development that you know would infiltrate well that you know minimizes the impact on what's already there it was a very challenging uh, exercise and we, we ended up you know they're they're buried adjacent to the um to the park and you'd never know it because they're buried and then on top of them you know the park exists so it's interesting when, when you walk through the open space network, um, you'd have no idea kind of the amount of work that's going on behind the scenes and, and right underneath you. And, you know, you look at the pond and we have, we have the two families of ducks in the pond and now there's some fish coming back, turtles, all kinds of wildlife. And, you know, the pond is, is serving this, it's this major artery for our site and, and doing a lot of work. It's, it's pretty neat. I think it's really cool that we can rely on some of these environmental services, these this the service that the environment can do for us in terms of like stormwater management in this pond. And then at the same time, you've got turtles living there. It's just so great to be able to, to reap the benefits of just being a little bit more creative with stormwater, with remediation. And the outcome is people have no idea. They just walk and they enjoy and they Kids are like, oh, there's a turtle. And it's just a nice experience, I'm sure, for everyone in, in, in that area. So I think to wrap up, I'll just ask you both and I'll start with Liz. Do you have a favorite corner on the site? Do you have a favorite place to be, to sit, to look, to, I don't know, experience? Oh, I do love how the shed frames the pond. So the shed is the parcel W development that 
it frames the pond and it, it looks over all these blocks that we were able to reuse that were former granite uh, boat slips when the site was the Millers River and just kind of getting to see it all. And I think in part of that is because I was so heavily involved in the stormwater management yeah. system. Great. And what about you, John? What, where do you like to sit and look or walk? <laughs> Gosh, it's it's hard to pick one. I, I agree with Liz. I, the, the pond, the way that the pond turned out, and um, I have to give a shout out to uh, Michael Van Valkenburg and Associates, uh, who came up with, the, they were our landscape architect on the, whole, the entire site. I think they're, you know, they're brilliant, along with Gilson and Thomas and all the other engineers that we've worked with. They came up with the stone reuse, the pond edge concept. And I, I remember when they first presented it and just thinking like, that is just wild. I don't know that, you know, there's kind of all <laughs> kinds of concerns about yeah. how do we even execute that? So that that is special and it's it is cool to be there and kind of know, like I said before, all the work that the pond is doing and kind of all the the action that's happening behind the scenes. I also really like um, just I have a, a personal connection with the, the Brian P. Murphy staircase and and how that came to take shape. That was a, a, a really complicated project, you know, in association with um, 450 Water Street and the connection to the bridge. And that was. Um, that was a that was an engineering challenge, a permitting challenge, uh, a site access challenge, but I think the end result there is is so impactful, and it, it's a it's a really special corner of the site. So if you haven't had a chance, you should. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. You should take a walk across the Gilmore Bridge and, and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and ex experience the the plaza that's there now. So I mean, it basically sounds like ABC needs to do a little like site uh, walk, and we can check out, and you can show us where the buried concrete is. Love <laughs> to, love to, yeah. I think that would be really fun to do. Well, great. Thank you so much for giving us your time, and I really um, am so happy to have ABC give this award. Congratulations to both of your teams and to the full project team on winning the collaboration award. Uh, it's a great project, a great site, and I encourage everybody to go out and take check it out, take, it, take a look, and um, I appreciate all the work you guys have done. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity and the recognition. There's there's so many there's too many uh, companies and consultants and people to mention, so I, I won't go down the rabbit hole. But you know, everyone who's worked on the project has been a you know, major contributor, and it's been such a fun project to be a part of. So, well, but all the it'll be in the show notes. You can check out the full project team and you know the num the full um, award on the UBC website and get some more information. So check out the show notes if you're curious. And thanks again to Liz and John for being here. And uh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed learning more about the Cambridge Crossing development in today's episode. I've actually spent some time over in that corner of Cambridge Somerville area before the development was in place. And I remember thinking, wow, there's really nothing over here. And I've even been buffeted by the wind while crossing the bridge over to Charlestown from that uh, corner of East Cambridge. So I know what it was like before to a certain extent, and I really look forward to a walking tour through ABC of the area just so I can get a new picture in my mind about what that area of Cambridge, Somerville, and Boston looks like. So you'll find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to our website, ebcne.org. And we are a brand new podcast, so please rate, leave a comment, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, my staff and I, we're going to be reading all the comments and trying to make this uh, podcast 
better every single time we have an episode come out. So let us know what you think. And next week's episode is going to be number four in this series of the EB Award winners. And it will feature the winner of EBC's Service to the Environment Award, Chip Crosetti. He is one of the co-founders of Sanborn Head & Associates, and he is someone who has really given generously of his time to EBC. He's been a part of our New Hampshire chapter for many years. He's been the vice chair for a long time as well, and really has helped move forward a lot of great programming for EBC up in New Hampshire. So I'm looking forward to that. I'll see you then. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sakar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, and to EBC intern Anna Wilcox for her wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senec Music 2023.